Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for Hosea chapter two and for this opportunity to learn from your word and to be challenged by your word. And Hosea presents a very unique challenge. And it's just, it's an honor, Lord, to study your word, even parts of your word, Lord, that aren't studied a lot. Those seem like they're even more precious because we don't hear about them a lot. And churches don't seem to teach them a lot. Preachers don't preach about them a lot. And so they just kind of go unnoticed many times. And it's really good to study those words. You know, we had a good journey earlier on this year with, uh, and late last year, with some of these minor prophets that are kind of like flyover country and no one really studies much about them and to pull out their, all, all the juicy goodness in the text. And God, we get that again tonight and with Hosea. And we just thank you for this journey that we're on. And we just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're going to be in chapter two only tonight. God responds to overt idolatry. We get, oh, we have someone enter the room and get them in here. We have three therefore statements and three in that day or on that day promises. So they kind of play out with threes there at the end. So they go two, three, three tonight. Okay. All right. Well, we're chapter two. Let's go two to five. Um, and I just got to say, I, wanna, I wanted to open tonight, I guess, with it was just one of those afternoons that I had things kind of planned out and then life happened. And it was just one of those things where there was car trouble and there was uh, just things you don't plan on. And to be able to, to take care of things and have to go to the randomly to the store to do this, to that. It got to the point where I was cooking dinner and I'm glad I looked at my phone. I was going to send my wife a text saying, hey, dinner's ready. And I saw that, you know, our, our, uh, one of our friends here, Sandy, has sent me a text asking about the, the email. I'd forgotten to email the class, our, our usual weekly class email. I'm like, oh, darn it. So I'm like leaving the stuff on the table, on the stove, and the stuff boiling or whatnot. Okay, race over to my laptop, try to get it done. Just one of those days, and where things, everything worked out. But it's kind of like by the grace of God, it all worked out. And and life sometimes is like that, where you plan and you plan, you think you got everything figured out, and then life happens, and all those plans, well, that's what they were. They were just plans, and so. Coming into this text, we just have to understand that God's got this, that God knows what he's doing. Last week, we had this great understanding that grace is very messy sometimes. It's also very confusing sometimes. Why God would show grace to us. And we don't deserve it. It's, just, it's like, it doesn't make sense. Grace never on its own makes sense. It just doesn't. And so we're going to see that again tonight, where God's going to come hard again. And then we're going to see God kind of do what he did last week. And where we get hope all over again. So God's coming with the rod to kind of deliver a spanking. And then all of a sudden, God's coming with another side. And our text is going to do that again tonight. So we're going to see God's love that clearly has expectations but also clearly is offering grace and hope. Only God could do that. 
Only God can take a messy day and make it work. Only God can take a messy life and make that work. God knows what he's doing. And here, we're going to see God responding to overt idolatry. God was looking at his people, his bride, his loved ones, and seeing what they did. And God had to speak out. Some of these words may be hard to read. In fact, I guarantee they're hard to read. They're going to be hard for me to read. But that's what God's doing here. God is calling out and responding to not just idolatry, but overt idolatry. Let's read this. Chapter 2, 2 to 5. Plead with your mother, plead. For she's not my wife, and I am not her husband. Ouch. Now, on the outset, that sounds really harsh. But just take one step back. What's God saying there? She's not acting like a wife. She's run, a wife doesn't run after every other guy. And that's what she's doing. She's not acting like a wife. You, you expect me to act like a husband to a wife that's doing that? She's not my wife. I'm not her husband. Plead with her that she would put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Now, I don't know how literal to take that. You got commentators talking about, you know, you, you, you can tell the woman on the prowl the, how they decorated their face. And um, I think it's in the Song of Solomon, one of the, the back and forth between the husband and wife is, hey, you put the little sachet of myrrh in between your breasts or something like that. And that's how in the days where you didn't take a lot of baths or I don't know. It's just there's something about this woman. And by this woman, God means Israel. But by this woman, God also means Hosea's wife, Gomer. Something about her face that was saying prostitute. There was something about cough, the rest of her, that was also saying prostitute. Put away that whoredom. There's something about that. This person is on the prowl. Lest I strip her naked and make her as the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. That's an odd metaphor, God. Unless you're not just talking about a woman, you're actually talking about Israel with that metaphor. Then it kind of makes sense. Hmm. Upon her children also I will have no mercy. So I guess for this metaphor, it'd be like the people of Israel because they are the children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, and here she goes, I told you overt idolatry. I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Ouch, by the way. What's she saying to God there? You ain't giving me these things. They are. Oh, really? Baal is giving you these things? Let me give you a theological newsflash. Baal is not. 
End of sentence, period. He's not. He's not in God's category. He's not God's equal. He's not providing anything. He is not. He's an idol. I mean, you could argue he's, you know, part of the, the, the satanic demonic horror. Okay, fine. I, I get that part of it theologically, but in terms of an object of worship, he is not. So look what this woman's doing here. She's prancing around, playing the field, purposely praying the, playing the field. And she's saying, I'm going to go to all my lovers who take care of me. This is like a Stooges episode where they're nyak, nyak, poking in the eye. These are like shots at God. How, so we have a call for dramatic change. God's like, hello. Um, stop. Whatever you got going on here, knock it off. This, um, this thing that you're doing, woman slash Israel, the one who's in a unique relationship with God slash me, and, you know, metaphorically, you know, with, with Hosea and Gomer, um, enough already. Stop. No. There's a dramatic change that must happen. It's almost like this is your last chance. Knock it off otherwise. And then we get a threat to punish. The bold, strutting, unrepentant. Throw yourself on these five verses. Don't you dare not. Just take one second, one harsh, hard second, and ask yourself, how am I that horror? Please pardon my language. If it wasn't directly from the text, I wouldn't put it that way. How do I play the harlot with God? Now, you're not answering for me. I just use I for myself, but you use it for yourself. What about you in your deepest, darkest recesses, the part of you that you don't share with anybody? Are you bold with that sin? Do you inwardly strut about with that sin? Can I ask a tough question? Are you unrepentant? Like, are you, God, you've got all of my life, but you know what? This little part over here, I like that. That's mine. Mictech's in a focus on immediate needs met immediately. Faith involves waiting, trusting in God, deliver and fulfill. It's hard to wait and trust in the Lord. Yeah, Baal was the immediate. Baal was the lightning God, the God of wind and rain, the God who pr promised crops. And when crops are everything, you might be tempted to pray to the crop God. Oh, you're not going to neglect your God, the God of your fathers or whatnot. You're not going to neglect that God. You're going to give Yahweh his props. You're going to go give him his, you know, due. But you're saying to yourself, my family's got to eat this year. So I better go pray to the farming God. The crops, the rain. I, there's a temptation there. And especially that God who's going to provide things for you. In your heart of hearts, are you ever there? You can't study Hosea chapter 2 and not ask that. Otherwise, you're just like an academic adventure. Oh, look at this. I wonder what she was involved in. Hmm, what was the nation of Israel involved in? Boy, boy, that really stinks. They should stop that. They're really angering their deity. Just throw yourself in the text. How bad had it gotten? My gosh. I talked about syncretism last week, taking Israel's God and every other God and saying, yeah, they're kind of like some mishmash. 
and what kind of heads are best and worship everybody. How bad had it gotten? Um, just read how God writes there. He's ticked. This would be the equivalent of on your honeymoon. Running after somebody, not your spouse. And maybe even worse than that. Like, seriously? God doesn't have to say it, but we would say it. Am I not enough? What is your deal? Now take it with God, who literally provides everything more than any husband ever could. Am I not enough? You really are going to step out on me? Oh, heck no. And yet we do it all the time. Anytime we choose my will over thy will. Anytime we choose flights of fancy, we choose to do things our way. We choose the immediate over the long term of trusting. Anytime we're choosing us over God, and we do so in those moments of temptation where we just say, you know what, God, I'll just, you'll forgive me. I know you will. I see that's abusing God's grace. It's the next thing there. Oh, that was my story. Oh, Lord, that was my story. I literally took 1 John 1, 9 every day and threw it at God. I pulled a Britney Spears. Oops, I did it again, God. 1 John 1, 9, God. I'm just saying, you jerk. You don't, you, you don't just say 1 John 1, 9 with God. Are you kidding me? I, I, I put in my devotion this morning a far side picture of God sitting at his computer with his finger hovering over the, the, the key on the keyboard saying smite as it's like this, this little nerdy looking guy is walking down the street and there's a piano hovering with a cable. And it's like God's going to smite this guy. Oh, yeah, that would be me. And God would have dropped that piano on me a million times if it was if I was the one in charge. Oh, yeah, I'd be done with me. No hope for this guy. Yeah, Daniel's Proverbs speaks of the wicked woman. Same goes for the whore of Babylon. They describe an adulterous and, and ludicrous women. Sandy said, we look to other things, comforts people, forgetting our first love, yet God never forgets us. Yeah, the crops are the economy. You're right. God is rightfully jealous. Um, yeah, I mean, how do they abuse God's grace? See, God brings up this not my people garbage again, because or it's not garbage, it's truth. It's like God's bringing that up because they're saying, hey, we're God's people. We get away with it. I would say things like, yeah, well, I'm, I'm one of God's guys. You know what? I'm on God's team. Yeah, so I've got a problem. So I need to really knock it off or whatever. But I know, I know I can always come back to God. I can always take the promises of God and let them ring true. And I'll never, never change. And I look back at that time in my life and just, you know, the stupid, stupid idiot. Why would you be that way? Where are you? Has it gotten that bad in you? Joel, I'm in your class. Leave me. What are you talking about? I know. I'm asking you to dig down inside of you. They were abusing God's grace. That very grace that doesn't make sense. At the end of last week, God gave them hope. And here they are back again. Ouch. This is tough stuff. I read this from the lens of my past hypocrisy. And it just kills me on the inside. And it's a great warning for now, too. Don't go back there. It is so tempting to be Israel, thinking we're good with God. 
it was the Pharisees trap too. They're like, we're God's guys. We got this. And Jesus is like, yeah, you're good on the outside, but you're inside. Forget about it. Jesus is like, I know what's going on. Three, therefore, statements, six to 15. You're all so excited about this chapter, aren't you? Like, oh gosh, he just keeps spanking me. Yeah, well, well trust me. For me to be spanking anybody, it means I got my butt beat in preparation, okay? Six to 15, big chunk. Therefore, I will hedge up, to, hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than for now, than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. The first, therefore, physical and theological boundaries. What's God doing here? This sounds really harsh, but what's God doing? God's making it so she can't run away from him. You catch that? What did he just do here? I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her. She cannot find her paths. God is making it so she can't run after all the other options. I kind of like that, actually. It's like God's saying, knock this off. But guess what? You may not get it, but I got your back. I'm still sovereign. I expect you to follow me. And I'm going to help you to follow me. Boom. Thank you, God. Because on my own, I'm never going to do it. I'm not speaking for you, but I bet your story is similar to mine. Without God's grace, we're never going to follow him. We're the lifeless corpses of Ephesians chapter 2. But God. But for God. That first, therefore, is physical and theological boundaries. What are the physical boundaries? I don't know. I honestly don't know. God's speaking of walls and thorns. He's making it so you're not going to go off the path. That sounds like a metaphor, but sure, it's theological. How is it theological? He's telling her, hey, yeah, um, husband number two sucks. He's impotent. He's worthless. He's, can, he's, he can't provide for you. He's nothing. He's Baal. He's a lifeless idol. Forget about it. God's putting physical and theological boundaries on this woman slash country. Hello? God's saying, I expect you to follow me. And God's going to help here by doing this. Irresistible grace. That's true. This is, why, this is why Calvinism has a point. Irresistible grace. How much are you going to resist God? It's kind of like when God calls, are you going to hang up? You might think you're going to hang up. But are you going to hang up? You're going to put God on hold. That's a scriptural thing. Who God calls, he predestines. And who he predestines, he, okay? When God calls, are you going to say, oh, sorry, God. I, you know what? I've got caller ID. and I, It says unknown. And I mean, I got one of those today. It was an unknown. I'm like, oh, what do I do? I'll answer. And it wasn't like your car's warranty, but something else. And I was like, all right, well, goodbye. You know, I'm not going to talk to you, but I don't answer the unknown. 
That's not God. God is known. But yeah, uh, the first therefore statement, physical and theological boundaries, let's keep going. Therefore, I will take back my grain, this is verse 9, in its time and my wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of all her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. She's still flaunting and strutting about, see. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. This hurts. If this were a relationship, like a dating relationship in a movie, you'd be yelling at the screen, get out of that. This guy doesn't want to be with you. He wants to do everything else, not be with you. Or this girl, is. she says she loves you, but she's literally with going after every other guy in school, not you. Or if this were a marriage, you'd be like, oh gosh, man, is there a way out of this? Or what's going on here? Like, that's the thoughts we'd be thinking. I'm not saying those thoughts are right. I'm just saying we would naturally be thinking that. We'd be our heart would be reaching out to the, the protagonist there and going, golly. Now that's God. And that's what we do in our sins. We run after all these other things and we're giving ourselves rationalizations and saying, yeah, they're good for me. They make me feel good. They make me feel secure. They make me feel, I don't know, one, two, three, X, Y, Z. You fill in that comment. And we follow those stinking feelings of ours. And they lead us down paths. We've already asked how bad has it gotten? Abusing God's grace. You see, God's first thing he does here, the first therefore, he's giving physical and theological boundaries to this woman slash country. Boundaries that she can't cross. She's stuck by, second of all, God's flexing. God is reinforcing his sovereignty. You're right, Daniel. We love him because he first loved us. Amen. And if, and if he didn't first love us, we're done. We will never choose to love him first. Amen. God's flexing. He's enforcing his sovereignty. All these things she's running after as if they're it. God's like, oh, you like those things, do you? You say your lovers give you those things, do you? Um, I'm going to make them dry up. Now, some commentators like to think that God's calling his shot here. Like Babe Ruth wanted to the polo grounds. Remember, he called the home run he later hit. And the commentators say, this is God saying, you're going to be toast. And you're going to be dry for a while. And in terms of Israel's history, what comes next? Assyria. Assyria is going to come and lay the boomstick on the upper ten tribes. That's where Hosea is teaching to, preaching to, the upper ten tribes, the nation of Israel, Ephraim. The Assyrians are going to come through Kaboom and wipe them out, cart them away. Goodbye, crispy critters. So some commentators are saying, this is God saying, I'm going to make this land dry and worthless. You're not going to have anything because you're either going to be dead or you're going to be slaves somewhere. This is God historically calling his shot and pro prophesying about Assyria coming. Because next in Israel's history is Assyria. We can't prove it from the text, 
but it sure seems to fit. You see, God gives three therefores to him. The first one is some boundaries. And every good relationship, especially relationships that are broken, need boundaries. And this is a relationship with God. And when you're in a relationship with God, if you have any ounce of sovereignty, you're not really in a relationship with God. You can't pull this 99%, 1% stuff with God. He's God of the 100 and that's it. Otherwise, that last little part that you're, you're in control of, now God, it has to come to you for that. You're a little bit sovereign. That ain't God. What's the third there for? Verse 14. And this is where God kind of changes the page here. Therefore, behold. I like that word. Behold. Dare I say, it's just a little bit sexual. He just had sex. Well, I already said the word breast earlier. We already talked about whoredom. I mean, what, what, what other word do you want me to say? Because look what he says here. Behold, I will allure her. Is God getting romantic? I mean, he's talking about Israel. It's like he's asking Hosea with God. I mean, it's... It, He's not directly doing it, but that's the metaphor we got here. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness. I will speak, speak tenderly to her. Okay? He's wooing her. There I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. That's linked to like, uh, remember the guy in, in the book of Joshua, Achan or Achan? He stole something and they, you know, he got found out and him and his family is like swallowed up by the earth. Okay. It's like not a hopeful story, but this tied to that, that God's going to reverse that. God's going to make that whole idea be hope. Wow. A door of hope. And there she shall answer me as in the days of her youth. As at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Oh, snap. Look what God just did. When did God and Israel have the best relationship? I've got friends who just got married and they're so cute to watch together. You know, they kind of go back and forth and they, you know, and they, they, they both are at the church. So you see them like, you know, making little comments and, you know, shooting, shooting each other little glances like, okay, they're man and wife. You just, you just ignore it. It's cute. Um, yeah, that was God and Israel. God redeemed Israel, rescued Israel out of Egypt, gave them the law, and like, wow, like God married to them, as it were, and then the marriage began in the wilderness. This is God going back to the wilderness. This is God going back to the Exodus to play with the image between Israel and God. This is romantic as it gets. That's where God's going. Sometimes when I have couples that I meet with and they struggle, I ask them about their dating days. What was it about him? Why did he stand out to you? Why would you say yes to that? What was it about her? What kind of things did you do when you were dating? Did they have to go to movies? What were some really happy memories you had? Let's think about some of those happy memories. Not this stuff you're dealing with right now. Let's go back there. 
Let's go back to the days of your youth. Remember some of those happier times? Oh, that's right. Boy, she was really sweet to me back then. Boy, she used to do, you know, make me this special treat or she would, you know, she made me some surprise cookies or, you know, well, he would, he would, he would fix my car or he would, you know, do these things. And boy, he just really was a great guy. He, he could do anything. Just remembering those things. That's what God's doing with Israel. He's letting them know, hey, I know I've been coming hard at you. But there's going to come a day when I'm going to woo you back. God, you don't have to woo me at all. If anything, I got to come on my face before you. What are you talking about, God? Grace doesn't make sense. Don't ever lose that. Baal is shown as impotent, useless, and unworthy. And God's desire is to restore. I don't know why that's God's desire. But I am so, so flipping glad that it is. God wants to restore. God wants us to be restored. Wow. God wants to give hope to the hopeless. Deservingly hopeless, I might add. These are not people who say, oh, I just found myself in this situation. I don't know what to do. I don't have any hope. No, these are people that were wandering away from God, strutting about in that wandering, poking God in the eye at every opportunity and saying, God, I don't need you because all these other things in my life take care of me better than you ever could. You wretch. Ouch. And God still loves. I invite anybody to Hosea chapter 2 who still thinks they can lose their salvation. Because if anybody's losing anything, this stinking Israel has lost it four or five times by now. And God keeps saying no. It doesn't make sense, but I love you. And I want to be with you eternally. So even if I have to swallow the hurt, I'm going to buy you back. And on the cross, he did. It's like a core means trouble. Trouble becomes hope. Amen. Restoration. Amen. Yeah. It's a good question, Daniel. Why would he not desire for us to be restored? He loved us even while we were still sinners. Why else do you think Christ died for us? It's true from a theological standpoint. That's a good question. But from an individual standpoint, just reading this text, we would all say, God, run from this stupid Israel. She is not worthy of you. There's no way she deserves you anymore. You have been given every out, God. Run. God loves us. It's a confusing chapter, but that just jumps out. Why would God go through all this? Well, two reasons theologically speaking. The first one is because God wants to. The second reason is that it brings him glory. 
the most possible amount of glory. Before we were even born, he had a plan to draw us to himself. He knew every time he was stray and he gave up his own life so that we could, we would not be wandering through a wilderness for the rest of ours. Great use of imagery there, Sandy. None of us is worthy. Daniel writes, God pursues us anyway. See, Baal is shown as impotent, useless, and unworthy, and God's desire is to restore and to give us hope. Let's finish this out, 16 to 23. God turns into an old man in my day. No, this is uh, in that day, or at least one time on that day. Three of them, 16 to 23. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. Now, Baal means like Lord or master. And so what the ESV did there is kind of made it a play on words, which is extremely important and applicable. So I guess it literally there, you're, you, you were going to call me my husband. You're not going to call me my master. Okay, so God's saying there's going to be a relationship here where, you know, you're going to, like we watched Bewitched or was it I Dream of Jeannie? Which one of them where she always was like, master? Yes, master. Yes, master. And you can see some romance there, but she always called him master. So it's like she wasn't calling him boyfriend or husband. So it's kind of like, okay. And so, I mean, God saying, you're going to call me my husband, not my Lord or my master, as in you're just going to whip me or, you know, keep me under chains. But literally here in the word, he's going to call, you're going to call me my husband, not my Baal. There's that syncretism again. These Israelites were calling God Baal. It fits the context of what they were doing. They were just worshiping, you know, that way. <sighs> Why? Verse 17. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. And, and they shall be remembered by name no more. Wow. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in, right, in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. Now that time, we all know from our times of the King James Bible that to know somebody is, is a sexual thing. That's obviously not here. No one's having sex with God, but God is talking about marriage. So it's not completely out of line to even bring something like that up because God's using the metaphor of marriage and a covenant and that intimacy that comes from that knowledge. You're going to be intimate with God in a way in which no one else is. I mean, it's odd to bring it up, but, but it, it, it's appropriate in this one rare instance. And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil. They all shall answer Jezreel. There's that word again. The idea of being planted. And I will sow her for myself in the land. You talk about, hey, you know, bloom where you're planted. This is God literally planting. Well, it's metaphorically, but this is what he's saying here. And I will have mercy on no mercy. Oh. 
That one caught me by surprise for one second. Little Miss No Mercy. There ain't no mercy for you. You get no mercy. In fact, I'm going to call you no mercy. I'm going to have mercy on no mercy. Have mercy. I'm going to have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you're my people. And he shall say, you are my God. The three in that day on the day promises, my, the new wedding vows are going to come. There's going to be a new marriage. You see, God's going to pursue again. There's going to be a new exodus. And there's going to be a brand new wedding vows. The original wedding vows are on Mount Sinai where God gave the law. God gave the covenant. All those thou shalt not. Here's what you are to do. That was like the great wedding ceremony. Here's the wedding vows. Here are the things that you're going to say to each other. And then a new marriage. And now there's a new planting and a new hope. Now, God's talking about wars, ending, all that kind of stuff. So this is far into the future because Israel is going to face a lot of wars from this writing until even now. So God's talking about this blessed future day. There's new hope. Well, how do we end this chapter? Take a drink. Hold on a second. Yeah. In intimacy with God yet again. Three things here. The first part of our lesson tonight taught us the vulgar nature of sin as viewed by God. You could take a random person reading the Bible and they would start clutching their pearls reading Hosea chapter two and go, oh my gosh. You could see a feminist reading this chapter and all of a sudden looking at hashtag me too moment after hashtag me too moment and going, oh yeah, look at that. That's misogyny. Oh, look at that. That's against women. Look at that. No, this is God looking at sin and being repulsed by it. God looks at sin, not the way we look at sin. We look at sin as opportunities to wiggle off the hook. We look at sin as opportunities to make excuses or rationalizations. I'm not saying any of you were as bad as I have been, but I know the temptation to justify, to rationalize. If we saw our sins as God saw our sins, I don't think we'd ever leave the church building. Like, no, worship service, please don't stop. I have more thanking to do. We would turn into Peter on that boat before Jesus, where he's like, I'm a sinful guy. What are you doing standing by me? Don't, don't you know me? I mean, obviously you do, but I'm me. You're standing by me. You're calling me. What are you doing by me? I'm a sinful man. Seriously, Lord. The vulgar nature of sin is viewed by God. I mean, John Newton got close when he wrote Amazing Grace. We talked about that last week. I know two things. I'm a great sinner. Understatement of the year, but he's an even greater savior. The vulgar nature of sin, not just the, oh, isn't that bad? No, it's raunchy and horrible. Sin is vulgar to the holy. Second of all, God's discipline confronts. And that confrontation hurts, but it's supposed to. 
God doesn't just confront, though. He restores. You see God confronting Israel here, telling her, you know, knock it off. Enough already. No more. But then God starts the process of restoring her and making it so she's going to follow him again, bringing her back. That's love. That's love. Israel gets a future that isn't deserved. She deserves to be called no mercy. She deserves to be called not my people. But because of God's grace, which doesn't make sense, she gets a future that isn't deserved. Now take away she and put in you. That's your story. Oh, goodness, that's my story. None of us deserve mercy. Each of us is no mercy. But God gives us mercy in Christ. None of us deserves to be God's people. But in Christ, we are now Abraham's seed. And we are heirs according to the promise, Galatians tells us. Oh, we get a future that isn't deserved. This chapter is harsh. This chapter is raw. This chapter hurts. But this chapter ends in hope. It ends in restoration. Jose is good stuff, isn't it? This has been Big Rev from Jose chapter two. Thanks for letting me share.